faces a difficult situation, a different, difficult circumstance in this passage. He has started these fledgling churches out and throughout the region. He is far from home. He is far from his own social network, far from the people that he grew up with. And he has established these churches. They are infant churches. And he, is now, he now has to go back. And you can appreciate how difficult this might be for Paul. I mean, he is leaving infants in the Lord out in the wilderness all alone. It is difficult to say goodbye. It is difficult for him to leave. And the difficulty is historically pretty clear. These churches, you know, unlike planting a church, say, in New Jersey, these churches are super far away from each other. They don't have a network that's around them. They're in the middle of nowhere, and they're surrounded by enemies. They're surrounded by Jews on the one hand who look upon these Christian churches as strange, perhaps traitors to perhaps heretics, to the traditions that have been passed down. They're opposed by the Romans on the other hand, this new strange borderline atheistic religion, only one God that is going to increasingly threaten the way in which the marketplace works and they're going to be seen as increasingly insidious. They're opposed. They're infant churches. They have no natural connections and network. Paul is worried. Now you might think that's speculative, but Paul actually tells us time and time again in his letters that he worries when he leaves. He worries that his work may prove to be in vain. And we can appreciate that worry. We can appreciate that fear from a human perspective, but he tells us directly. So, for example, later on, he hears some of the things that the church in Galatia has started to believe. And he says, I'm afraid. I'm afraid that I have labored over you in vain. He instructs the Philippians, hold fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. That's the fear. That's the risk of leaving. That's the risk of saying goodbye. That's why it's difficult because you are committing these churches unto themselves. You are committing them into their own hands. You are turning them over to their own devices and you are hoping and praying for the best. I think many of us can appreciate that circumstance. That happens to all of us in life, does it not? You don't even have to be in missions to appreciate the difficulty of that, whether it's sending a kid off to college or, or the little micro saying goodbyes of in the morning, are they going to do okay at school? Are they going to do okay in sports and the things that they have committed themselves to? Or turning a project over at work to the group that's going to handle it and take it to completion from this point on. We face those kinds of questions where we give up control and put it into somebody else's hands and there's nothing left that we can do about it. It's certainly the case in the church. It's certainly the case in missions. You're a Sunday school teacher and you've labored over the course of the week and you've tried to get a message across and you wonder not whether they're going to remember it, but how soon they're going to forget it. It's your labor in vain. Is your work in vain? Does God really attend His Word and bear fruit through our ministry? 
Or is it going to fall like seed from the sower on fallow soil and be choked out by the pressures of this world, by the temptations that we face, by the devil himself? Paul has those questions as well. And as he, in faith, leaves these churches to fend for themselves, he sets a pattern for us to think about how we, too, can leave well, how we can entrust work to one another. He, in his behavior, in his deeds, in the things that he says, he teaches us how to prepare people to meet unknown challenges that it will certainly face. How do we prepare our children? How do we prepare ourselves as a church to meet the unknown challenges and tribulations that we face as we pursue the kingdom of God? We'll look at Paul's activity here as instructive for us. When Paul leaves, what does he say? When Paul leaves, what does he do? When Paul leaves, what gives him hope? When Paul leaves, what does he need? First then, when Paul leaves, what does he say? How does he instruct the churches? What are his last words that he provides to the churches that would kind of ring in their ears as they engage and follow the path that God has laid out for him. He gives them some last words. Before he leaves, he teaches them. So in verse 21, they preached uh, the gospel in Derby, and then they made many disciples, and then you get the kind of stretch there in that second part of that verse. They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. So they went there, and now that's the path back. So they go out where they were, and now he's going back again. And as he goes back, he has a message. He has a last word sermon, we might say. The, the, the thing that as he's going back, as he's retracing his steps, he imparts and instructs the churches that he passes. He is, verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. What does Paul say? He says things that will encourage the churches to persevere. He doesn't nuance his gospel. He doesn't qualify it. He doesn't provide for them some secret teaching. What he tells them is, endure in faith. And he gives them the context of why they'll, they're going to need that particular instruction. Endure in faith because, because... It is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul knows and he uh, predicts that the church that he has labored for is going to hit times of suffering. Now, circumstantially, it's easy to see how he can see that on the rise, and they're surrounding, surrounded by enemies. Paul also has a, a deal of history with this. He understands suffering. He has suffered on his own ministry travels. In fact, when God calls Paul to ministry, he does so by saying, I am going to cause, look how much I'm going to cause him to suffer. He can't even anticipate how much suffering he is going to endure as he proclaims the kingdom of God. Paul, theologically, is well acquainted with this idea, and he wants to forewarn the people who are going to have to endure that faith in the midst of suffering is difficult. It's a strange encouragement to give, 
but it's a necessary one. You want somebody to tell you that it's difficult. Right? When somebody says, you know, you, you have your first child and somebody says, oh, that's great. Oh, you know, and you're spo- children are supposed to be a blessing from the Lord. They're, they're beautiful and they're cute. They're, little, they're bundles of joy, right? They're bundles of joy. And everybody is talking about how they're bundles of joy. And no one tells you that you're not going to sleep for the next six weeks and that there's going to be trials that you are going to face and it's going to be, there's stressful bundles of joy. And you're going to make mistakes. You're going to make a lot of mistakes that are going to affect their lives. And no one tells you how difficult parenting can be. And when you confess to them that it's hard, the assumption is you're doing it wrong. Rather than, no, parenting, somebody tells you, Parenting is hard, and you want that person to come in and say, this is a difficult thing. This is just the way it is. You are not abnormal. Notice what Paul does. If you pick up how quick this happens, in 19, the Jews, it's like super high-speed narrative here. Some big significant things happen, but it happens so quick that you almost miss it. Jews from Antioch and Iconium, they gathered together, they persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul, they dragged him out of the city, then the disciples gathered, and he got up the next day and he went back to the same city. How's Paul able to do that? I mean, this is a, this is a traumatic event. This is a lot, you, I don't know personally, but stoning, I would imagine, is a, 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 a life-changing traumatic event. And he gets up and he keeps going. How is Paul able to do that? How has he prepared himself to be able to just get up and go forth and do it all over again, knowing that through many tribulations we will enter the kingdom of God? Well, there's all sorts of reasons, right? He, he knows his Bible. He knows to expect suffering. He is a man of faith who trusts in God. He trusts in the providence of God to carry him forward. Uh, he trusts that God will uh, use his ministry. He's a brave soul who uh, has prepared his heart and mind to endure many hardships. We can look to all those virtues that Paul has that enables him to do that. But there's something else there, and this is the something that we need to see. It's the something that Paul instructs his churches about. Suffering is normal. Paul was expecting something like this. Nothing strange has happened to him. Isn't that what we confessed earlier in the service? In the promise of forgiveness. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Suffering is a promise. And Paul knows that. He knows that he's going to face, particularly as he's proclaiming the gospel, the kind of suffering that he is experiencing here, the suffering of persecution. And the reason he knows that is because he knows how saints endured in the ages past. He knows the history of Israel. He knows that it is never without tribulation that the kingdom of God comes. And he knows it because he knows his Savior, Jesus Christ. How did Jesus Christ obtain glory? How did he obtain the glory that was promised to him, the glory of resurrection? It was through suffering. That's this passage here in 1 Peter. Peter, much later, uh, but through the same process, is going to learn the same lesson that Paul has 
already learned. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. There you have encapsulated for you what we call the event of the gospel. That's Jesus's life story. He suffered, and then after these things, he received glory. That's the pattern of his life. He first, he suffered, and through his suffering, he obtains glory that outweighs every suffering that he encountered, okay? Suffering and then glory. In the rest of three, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, Peter tells us. And then in 4.12, do not be surprised at the fiery trial that comes to test you. Why not? But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. This is why Paul knows he will suffer and the church will suffer, because we have taken upon ourselves Christ. And if you have taken upon yourselves Christ and all that He represents, you take upon yourself the basic life pattern that Jesus lived. Glory through suffering. The servant is not above the master. And so the call of Christ is the call to take up our cross and follow Him. To, as Paul says in Philippians, to live is Christ. What does he mean by that? We get to die is gain. That makes sense. I go to heaven when I die. To die is gain. What about to live is Christ? What does that mean? It means for Paul, to live is to live out in one's body the sufferings endured by Christ. The same kinds of suffering. We are imitators of Him, and Paul knows that as he imitates Christ, he is being prepared for the weight of glory that will come upon him, and he is testifying to the glory of Christ, who suffered first, foremost, and foundationally for him. Through suffering, through nothing but suffering, the church must endure into the kingdom of God through suffering. Paul tells the churches this as he leaves. He reminds them that tribulations will come. He takes off the rose-covered glasses. He takes off all of the delight of the honeymoon period, and he reminds them, you will hit tribulation, endure through those things, endure by faith, trusting in Jesus Christ. Do not be surprised when it comes upon you. You are sharing in the sufferings of Christ. That's what Paul says. What does he then do? Paul doesn't just leave it with that instruction. That's the center of what Paul wants to do. It's the frame for everything he does in this chapter. You can just feel how that controls his missionary journey back, his back again to Antioch. He is traveling back, and as he's traveling back, the big frame, the master purpose that he's trying to accomplish is to prepare the church to meet suffering. And he does that first by telling them what to expect. Second, by doing something to their advantage. He gives them a present. What does he do? And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Verse 23 What Paul does is he appoints shepherds for the care of these churches. It's what Moses did uh, as Moses and Israelites are pursuing the kingdom of God. They cannot do it without good leadership. Paul, a good Jew that he is, 
good believer in Jesus Christ who knows his tradition, who knows what God did in ages past, he cannot conceive of a body without leaders. He knows that they will need leaders to endure the sufferings that they will face. You cannot throw a flock of sheep in the wilderness, and we are all sheep, leaders, non-leaders, we are all sheep in God's field, among God's pasture. You cannot throw a group of sheep in the wilderness and expect them to survive. They will, to a sheep, wander off and get caught in the snares. They need shepherds to keep them together, to keep them united, to keep them on the path, to keep them on the goal. They need shepherds, and what Paul does is he turns to what he has learned from the Jerusalem church, to what he's learned from the history of God's dealing with his people, and he provides these new fledgling Gentile churches a pathway to mature leadership. These churches don't know what Christian leadership looks like. The Jerusalem church does. The Jerusalem church has a tradition of elders that, is, uh, that, they have, that they have pulled on, and as they become Christians, they've got a framework for what leadership looks like. What Paul does is he takes that framework from Jerusalem, from the other churches that have been established, and he gives it as a gift to these new, fledgling, mostly Gentile churches. You need this model of shepherding leadership to survive in the wilderness. And that's extremely helpful for us. It helps us attune ourselves to what the leaders in our lives, maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a Sunday school teacher, elders and deacons are the formal leaders of the church. It attunes us to what to expect from our leaders. Our leaders are not, you, you, you can notice from like, for example, Titus 1 or 1 Timothy 5, the, the purpose of Paul appointing leaders is not to provide the church with somebody who can set the agenda, who can cast a vision, who uh, can make the decisions that need to be made. Leaders in God's church are not given primarily to make decisions. Now, leaders do make decisions. You have to make decisions, right? But that's not their primary purpose. Their primary purpose is to shepherd the sheep through suffering and into glory. They are primarily not decision makers, not generals, but shepherds, caretakers, hospital nurses. That's how shepherds are chosen. You look at the lists in Titus 3 and 1 Timothy 5. The characteristics that you find on those lists, it's not, you know, great CEO, uh, great uh, vision casters, takes initiative. Those aren't the kind of characteristics. Those are great characteristics to have in leaders, but those aren't the fundamental primary characteristics. The two things that Paul mentions are you need people that are virtuous, righteous, generally not perfect. None of them are perfect, but you need righteous souls who are committed to the Lord Jesus Christ, and they need to be sympathetic, and they need to teach. Those are the three things. Righteous, teachers who are sympathetic. Why those qualities? Because the shepherds are designed to sympathetically care for the sheep, to teach them on the path through suffering and into glory. 
Paul appoints leaders for this purpose. He wants the church to survive. He appoints leaders who will take care of the sheep while he is away. He does not leave them on their own and alone. He leaves them with caretakers. A reminder to us how important it is to care for the souls within our midst. When Paul leaves, he appoints leaders. When Paul leaves, what gives him hope? It takes courage to leave. Paul has acted. He's put into place doctrine for them to remember, leaders for them to look to for their care. He has acted on their behalf and done his duty to prepare them, but he still has to cut the cord. He still has to leave. How is he enabled to do that? What gives him hope to do that? What gives him the courage to leave? It is hard to leave. If you've sent a kid off to college, I know a lot of you have sent your kids off to college, you may have, you feel this, right? You may have done everything right. You gave them all the tools of learning that they need, all the instruction that they needed, all the maturity that they needed, and you've sent them off to college, and you realize that they are on their own, and it's a tough world out there, and you don't have control anymore. And it's terrifying. I'm terrified, and I'm 10 years away from it. You don't have control. You don't have the ability to intercede. At least you don't have as much. And then that's a big life-changing event. But we face those little micro goodbyes every day of our life. You may be the kid's coach, but when they're out in the field, you have limited control over what they can do. You just hope that you have prepared them well. We face those little trials in our lives. A friend at school comes to you for advice, comes to talk through, to commiserate over some teacher or some girlfriend or something like that, and you offer the advice, and you can't control what that person does with your counsel. You can't control what they do, and you can't control how people respond to what they do. There are all these times where we do our best, and there comes the time where we have to say goodbye. What do we do? Paul, he's spoken the word of God to them, encouraged them to persevere, and then he's, uh, he's put leaders into their care. And then what does he do? Through prayer and fasting, he committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Relinquishing control, saying goodbye, requires faith. It requires turning these things over to the Lord. That's a pious thing that we say to each other. I've turned that over to the Lord. But we all know that in our heart of hearts, we all kind of think nagging might be a better option, like picking up the phone and giving one more instruction or one more command. Like, nagging would surely be even more effective. But in reality, there is an appropriateness in stepping back in, you, you have to do this wisely, you have to know when the right time is, all of the qualifications. But what Paul does is he says, no, what you need right now is not me, but you need to say goodbye. You need to be on your own. And Paul, doesn't, uh, Paul is able to do that because he has the courage provided by faith. He knows that though he is absent, that nevertheless prayers are meaningful, prayers change things, and that God will never abandon his church. It's not Paul's church, it's God's church. 
And so he commends them over into the hands of the Lord. Paul knows how to do this, by the way, because it's precisely what was done to him when he was sent in, from Antioch. They sent him with precisely these same words. They prayed for him, they fasted, and then they, commend, they, they uh, committed them over to the Lord's hands to do the work that, they, that he's been called to do. They've relinquished control. They've relinquished responsibility. They've sent him out. Those ties have now been, uh, they're certainly eternal in one sense, but they don't have any direct control over Paul anymore. And they're entrusting the Lord to do the work that Paul has committed himself to do. Trust that the Word of God doesn't return void. That God never does a vain thing. Hard to see that from time to time. Sometimes it looks like the seed is following, falling on fallow soil. And yet the Lord always has a purpose. He superintends the speaking of His Word. He superintends those Sunday school talks. He superintends your little, uh, the family devotionals that we're engaged in. He, he is behind all of those things, and He is bringing fruit out of them. We don't meddle incessantly, but entrust these things to the Lord Christ. Finally then, when Paul leaves, what does he need? What, what does Paul need after such a long, grueling, difficult journey? He gets back to Antioch, and when they arrived, verse 27, and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, how he opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. What does Paul need to do? First, the first thing that Paul does, it seems like right as he arrives, he starts to share the work of God. And notice, it's not his work. It's not to share the work that he had engaged in. It's to share that the work that God did through him. Again, that sounds very pious. It sounds very Christian. But if you really get that theologically, it will change how you speak about the mission of the church. It's, this is ingrained into Paul. Okay? His ministry is not Paul of Tarsus Ministries. Right? It's not about him. It's not his work. He is engaged in the work of Christ, but the work itself belongs not to him, but to the church as a whole, and particularly to its head, Jesus Christ, our King, our Lord, for whom all these things are done and by whose power all of these things bear fruit. That's Paul's basic mindset as he's returning. What has God done among the Gentiles? And because that's his mindset, he wants to share. Promoting ourselves is a great motivation for sharing, right? It can take us so far. But there's a point at which we start to become narcissistic and people start to spot that in ourselves. Paul has a different motive. See, Paul is at no risk of that. And the reason Paul is at no risk of that is because his underlying motive is, I was the weak and fragile agent that God used to minister to this people, that God used to open the door to the Gentiles. Perhaps recognizing that Peter cracked a window in Acts 10, he gets to open the door. This new climactic work that God is doing among the Gentiles, he had a part in it. And he wants to share that. And sharing that for Paul is a way of reminding himself 
and the churches that he's been sent by that this isn't his work, it's our work. We are together engaged in this ministry. Uh, didn't mention it in the announcements. Phil Kirkland is going to be preaching for us tonight. I'd encourage you, come and enjoy that moment in which he gets to share with us some of the things that he's been engaged in, the things that are going on in Greece, how God is opening a door of salvation to the refugees who are flooding in to that country. That's, we get to hear that, and that's not about Phil, and Phil knows that, and I'm glad that he knows it, because then he can share it with us as this great joy that we all get to partake in, and that we all get to be ministered by through. Paul shares, and then interestingly, informatively, the hero, Paul, the greatest theologian of the first century church, he rests. He takes a break. I love how Luke sometimes puts things in this understated way. He doesn't blare the horn, right? He doesn't say, this is what I'm trying to do here. This is what this passage means. But he kind of sets these little subtle reminders of how the gospel goes forward and how things are reported and what people do. He does that in Luke uh, as well. And it's certainly here the case in verse 28 in Acts. Notice he bookends Paul's first ministry with this. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Why did Paul spend such a long time in Antioch? Because it's his home. This is where he started. This is where he, the seedbed of his ministry, this is where he began. This is where his friends are. This is where his partners in Christ are. This is his home. And he's returning home. And at his home, he's going to do what God has, God has called him to do. He is going to rest. And that is difficult for us, right? It is, we want to meddle, not to rest. We want to work and not to rest. But faith, faith requires us to do our duty, to do the things that God has called us to do, to proclaim the things that need to be proclaimed, to go through our, the math and the science and the English, and then to realize that there is a point at which the work has been done. I need to rest and commit these things to the Lord for fruitfulness. Paul, again, knows that. And so what he does when he gets back home is he rests. He stops laboring. He takes a break. And that requires faith. Every action that Paul engages in throughout this passage, the things that he says, the things that he does, the, the hope that he has, and finally, the rest that he's able to enjoy when he returns home, these things require the faith to relinquish our ability to control our situation and turn these things over to God. Enduring suffering requires the faith to know that it's not, I'm not suffering right now because I'm doing it wrong. I'm not suffering right now and my instinct response should be to fix it. Faith tells you, no, you're suffering right now because you're walking in the footsteps of Jesus Christ and you must suffer in order to enter the kingdom of God. Faith submits to the leaders who are over us, parents, teachers, elders, deacons. Faith says, not my will, but Christ's will be done. 
And Christ has appointed people in my life who can help me to better understand what God's call is to me in this moment of trial, in this moment of temptation, in this moment of suffering. Faith requires and encourages us to rest, to cease from labor, entrusting that I have sowed the seed, I have watered the soil, but it is God who gives the increase. And the promise that comes to us is precisely that promise from Isaiah, repeated by Jesus, repeated by Peter. The Word of God is powerful and fruitful. It will not return void. It is a good thing to entrust ourselves to a good God who loves His church more than we do. I'll close with Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Our labor is not in vain because God does watch over the city. God does build up the house. Let us remind ourselves of those things and entrust our labor to him for fruit.